Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult, and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. So we're in the midst of both a housing crisis and a climate crisis, in addition to a number of other crises as well. And there's a couple of questions which are on my mind because I'm not an expert in housing. How do we build more homes and how can this be done in a way that is planet positive? What is passive house and what is a building biologist, which is a real thing, believe it or not? These are all questions I ask Emma Osmondson, who is the chief exec of Waltham Forest Council's property development company, 60 Bricks. Emma explains how property development companies operate, how the financing works and how the relationships needed with councils and other partners work. I mentioned Passive House at the start of this introduction, and you may know what it is, but Emma is a real expert and a real advocate for Passive House. It's a highly efficient and environmentally friendly building standard. She explains more about what this is, how it's achieved, before going on to talk about the fascinating work of building biologists, which is taking things to a different level, and how the way a house is designed and built influences health and well-being. Housing developments are so much more than just the physical houses that comprise them. The focus needs to be on building communities with the right social infrastructure in place, such as access to green spaces, public services and schools and things like that. And it's not just housing Emma is interested in. She has also led the development of the UK's first passive house leisure centre, which was remarkable given how energy inefficient leisure centres tend to be. So let's hear from Emma. Emma, a huge welcome onto the podcast. Um, I haven't had a housing expert on the podcast yet, so that's why I'm so excited to talk to you. And it it's it feels strange to me, given that the housing crisis is one of the many poly crises that we're facing at the minute. So we're going to talk about all of that. But before we get into it, it'd be great just if you could introduce yourself to the listeners. Great. Well, hi, Andrew. Really great to join you. Um, yes. Who am I? Well, 
I always shy away when people start referring to well, if they reference me to being an expert because I just don't really identify with that. Um, I guess I'm a chartered building surveyor and charter director. Um, I've been sort of um, professional now for the last 30 years. And that's been split evenly between working in the private sector and um, working in the public and charitable sector. Um, to sum me up, I, I, I guess I'm a passionate person and I'm really passionate about really developing homes and buildings for the common good. And and what I mean by that is I'm I'm really wedded to delivering buildings that address those triple bottom line principles of being kind of equally socially responsible, um, environmentally and financially responsible. And that's really important to me. And for the last certainly decade or so, I've been responsible for leading um, house building in local council. So in Exeter City Council and there and more recently for Waltham Borough. Um, um, borough council um, for 60 bricks fantastic when we spoke the last time uh, you described yourself as a disruptor in your sector what does that mean yeah a lot of people dis- describe me as a disruptor i mean or i perhaps like to you think, said that you, yeah. you were described you didn't describe yourself yeah, sorry I, I, you, I, I, you have been yeah, I, I think a lot of people describe me as a disruptor, but I, I kind of prefer to call myself kind of more of a change maker. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's because I, I was a very early adopter for developing um, homes in particular that were, you know, ultra low carbon, um, zero carbon, that were really energy efficient, um, that were healthy and climate ready. So, so I think I've kind of disrupted the market in so much as I've been able to demonstrate that these things are possible. So at the very beginning, Andrew, you kind of talked about, you know, all these compounding challenges that we've got at the moment and the housing crisis being one of them. But of course, you know, we've got massive environmental crisis that we are now seeing right enough in front of our faces in terms of climate conditions and of course we've got ever-growing social issues um, and and they're not diminishing and they're becoming bigger and more complex so I guess for me um, how I've seeked or have sought to disrupt the market is by trying to combine some of those aspects into really building much better homes and uh, and particularly within the lenses of um, affordable homes yeah and we will we will talk a, a bit later on about how you approach that how you go about that because i know that there's some interesting approaches there which we can get into but before i do you mentioned that you had been working in the private sector as well so what encouraged you to move it into the public sector well it's been interesting reflecting on my career today because 30 years quite a long time um and the fact that those have been really evenly split between the two but I think for me the trigger moving into the private sector was I guess to a certain degree a bit of a redemption because um, I'd kind of worked dare I say in the dark side for the first part of my career and I really really enjoyed the sort of dynamic um, challenging um, aspects about you know basically taking a piece of dirt and and turning it into sort of gold you know gold yeah. and and kind of all the trappings that went with it 
personally benefiting you know working in the private sector you know there's high risk but there's also high reward we you know when you're a developer the one thing that is probably one of the most challenging notwithstanding planning is you know acquiring land you know trying to get it the right price trying to get a deal together that's going to deliver something that is viable and back in 2008 um, we were going through um, another financial crisis and you know development was really difficult if you look at the life cycle of my career um, to date you know I've had two redundancies as a consequence of basically the market dropping out and development activity slowing. And so I suddenly sought, I guess, somewhere safer, but somewhere that I could continuing, continue developing um, mm. where there was land available. And that naturally sort of drew me to the public sector. But I would hasten to add, I think it also really aligned with who I was as a person. You know, I'd yeah. grown up living you know living in and out of my grandparents' council homes yeah. um so i you know i was really familiar with the concept of social housing and as a committed christian i also wanted to do something that more aligned to my values yeah um and it's all very well making money for the shareholders or you know the private investors in 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 the private sector but there's something really gratifying about generating wealth for the public sector and that wealth is not yeah. just financial but some of those social benefits as well one of the things you mentioned there was the availability of land and i think probably what you mean by that is if you want to build a lot of good houses then the public sector is probably the place that has access to that land to enable that to happen would that be fair i mean that i mean the, the supply of land is diminishing but um obviously the, the if you think about the uk as a whole the public sector you know is a major landholder, uh, mm. not just councils, but if you look at the NHS, if you look at uh, our rail track and the like, they've all got influence in terms of significant land holdings. So, and it's not just spare land. Obviously, we're now seeing a, a, a sort of renaissance in estate regeneration. So, where mm. we're seeing councils really addressing um, their existing housing stock and the scope that you can, you know, really transform existing estates into um, homes that are much higher quality, perhaps higher density, um, much better placemaking. So there are lots more opportunities within the public sector than um, I would say in the private sector. I mean, there's always going to be land opportunities wherever you look and if you look closely enough. But I think the public sector, there there is still scope um, to bring forward um, either underutilised brownfield or land that never really has been thought about as potential um, yeah. housing would would you mind just for people listening and for me i have to admit who don't understand fully the dynamics of how an organization like 60 bricks works with a council or what the relationship is okay yeah so so there's lots of us in terms of council-owned development companies and um so we are wholly owned by uh London Borough of Waltham Forest. So they're our 100% shareholder. And our remit is principally to deliver more homes across the borough. Um, now, a high proportion of what we deliver um, is affordable because ultimately that's what our shareholder wants. Yes. Um, and so we are... And, te- and affordable, just again, for people who might not who probably recognise instinctively what that means. What does that mean in terms of a, of a dwelling? Well, I mean, 
I mean, that's under a lot of debate at the moment because, you know, is anything affordable? So what we seek to deliver is a fair proportion of our affordable homes at a social rent. Yeah. So that was that would probably be the only remaining kind of affordable homes um, that um, are deliverable. And but we also have a broadened offer. So we also provide some shared ownership homes. So that offers the opportunity for people to get a, sort of a, a foot on the housing ladder. Yeah. Um, but those principally are the two types of affordable homes that we're currently yeah. delivering. But that, you know, that, but there are other, lots of other council development companies that are delivering other social um, housing, social rent homes. Um, also within London, there's the London affordable rent and, you know, and some obviously also delivering some shared ownership. Yeah. And then the funding to build the houses, does that come from the council or is that from a variety of sources? For our current model, um, we predominantly rely on borrowing from the council. Yep. So, um, and that principally comes from the Public Works Loan Board. Yes. Um, but also for a number of our schemes, particularly um, if they're 100% affordable or where we've got an over provision of affordable homes, we'll work closely with the GLA in terms of securing yeah. um, some grant to help subsidise the costs of those new developments. Yeah, that's the Greater London Assembly. That's the kind That's of right. you know, overarching body that is involved across all of Greater London. Um, thank you very much for explaining that. That'll be helpful for some people listening just to get some kind of context as of what, what everything here means in terms of, of the public sector building houses. So your challenge is to get things done in a public sector environment. How do you approach that? Well, what I would say, unfortunately, we're not filming this, um, is that I used to have far less wrinkles than what I've got now. Because, <laughs> you know, to be quite honest, you know, developing and delivering any new homes these days is extremely challenging. Yeah. Um, you know, economic conditions, um, market forces, it's it's really not easy. So um, I guess from my perspective, I mean, what, what I what I think is really important is that we really need to understand risk. And be comfortable in terms of how we manage risk. Mm. And it's really easy um, for us to stop building, you know, pull up the, you know, pull up the drawbridge and wait until perhaps economic conditions, market forces yeah. change. I mean, but, I'm, I'm reading in the newspapers quite a lot these days about how developers are pulling back and they are you know, because of interest rates and lack yeah. of demand because of increasing mortgage costs and everything. Yeah, you've got interest rates, you've got mortgage costs, you've got the uncertainty in terms of market conditions, you've got the changes to building regulations, to fire standards. You know, there's so much uncertainty. And the problem with uncertainty, that increases risk. Yeah. If you increase risk, that in invariably increases cost. And so there is a real opportunity here in the public sector for us to, I guess, take that leadership role in terms of um, civic leadership in really spearheading with developing homes when a lot of the private sector at the moment are, are having to sit back and wait to see how market conditions will change. So I think we need to understand risk and be comfortable in managing risk. And that can be quite counterculture for local government. Mm. Um, you know, often, you know, the public sector can be seen to be quite risk adverse. Um, so I think it's been really key to develop teams that um, have got the experience working both within the public and pri private sector that can manage risk that yeah. can, you know, because at the end of the day, not developing is a risk in itself. 
If we yes. don't deliver more homes, we're going to incur greater costs in terms of people on the housing waiting lists. We're going to have, you know, social and um, economic ramifications of having, you know, a lack of supply when we've got ever increasing demand. So there is a risk of not doing nothing. I think also collaboration is key. You know, we are a developer, but, you know, we don't do everything. We need to work and collaborate with the communities in which we're, we're building the new homes. Um, we need to ensure that, you know, the context of what we're delivering and, and the location is right. We need to work closely with constructors um, mm. and, you know, contractors are having a rough time at the moment. You know, they themselves are going through a turbulent period. Some of them are financially in a precarious position. So we need to work in collaboration with them. We need to work with planners um, and building control to ensure that, you know, what we're, we're de- delivering is it's viable and um, it's cost effective. Um, but also that we are creating a level of placemaking that is going to stand the test, stand the test of time. Mm. Um, so it's really important that we sort of collaborate closely um, with our, our colleagues to ensure of that. But I think it's also really important that um, in this these turbulent times and times of uncertainty that we hold on to our understanding of value. You know, so much development is driven by cost. How much does everything cost? What are we going to get back in terms of our profitable return? And I think it's really important that we focus on value. So what are we seeking to achieve? What value are we bringing in the creation of new placemaking or new communities? What value are we we bringing by building much better quality homes in terms of the health and well-being of our residents or our tenants Um, and I think often people aren't sophisticated enough to discern the difference between cost and value and I think that's really important if we're going to get through um, the current challenging conditions that we're all facing. Yeah so the relationship with Waltham Forest in the case of 60 Bricks do you agree with things I'm trying to figure I'm just trying to get my head around how you kind of um, how you achieve your objectives within that very pressurized, often risk averse public sector environment. Do you agree broad objectives up front and then you've got quite a lot of flexibility as to how you go about achieving those objectives? Or do you keep having to go back and get approvals and things? I think where we're successful is that we have a good understanding of what the needs are for the council. Hmm. Um, and so we have to the role we have to play is kind of negotiating the needs of the council. They want you know lots more affordable homes. They want they want exemplar homes that look great. Uh, they want all the the additional facilities that come with placemaking, like playing playgrounds, you know, hmm. children play equipment, um, public open space, maybe even you know medical centres, which we've put in some of our developments, um, other community spaces. You know, so we understand what their needs are, what their wants are, but we have to kind of make those deliverable through looking at viable delivery methods through the cold commerciality of what we're seeking to achieve. So, so we have to work really in collaboration with each other um, and ensuring that there's a real understanding of, you know, what we can do, what our, you know, what our, what our limitations are, as well as what the, the strengths that we can bring. Um, but also how we need to work together to share risk. Um, so, you know, ultimately they're our funder. So they help to de-risk our projects through giving us, you know, a constant supply of, of income 
that you know that we will we 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 obviously have to repay with interest but also in terms of um giving us the opportunity to bring forward public sector land for development so that yeah. helps us de-risk we're not having to compete in the private sector because we're a tackle company so we can really partner with the council to deliver them what they need yeah just for for people listening uh tackle is a is a procurement exemption to do with the fact that you're wholly owned by the council. So it's just kind of puts you in a slightly different position to, to maybe some private companies. Um, something you mentioned there is extremely interesting to me. You've talked so far about creating social assets and you've also talked about integrating public and community services like medical centers, open spaces into your developments. Could you say a little bit more about that? Because that, that to me is so important in the whole leveling up conversation and about trying to create really thriving places for people to live. Yeah, I mean, it's critically important. I mean, you know, homes are really important, but the, the setting of our homes and the wider community facilities that go with homes are critically important. So we place a, a significant emphasis in terms of our environmental and social governance in terms of what we're doing. Um, and I think this is um, really important in terms of helping communities understand the why, you know, why are we developing perhaps in their existing communities? And if you mm-hmm. take, for instance, Waltham Forest, you know, it's a it's a really exciting borough that's going through um, a transitional change at the moment with lots of new yeah. development. And it's really important that we can demonstrate through our civic leadership as a developer that Building homes on their own is not the solution. It's about the community building that we do. And so, yeah. you know, a lot of our you know, development economic models um, are really challenged in terms of well, how do we incorporate some of those social aspects that maybe other private developers will, but to more of a limited capability. Yeah. Um, and so um, this is where that collaboration with the council is really key. So we can look at what we're delivering as a kind of a pipeline across a whole yeah. portfolio and we can look at how can we ensure that we're generating that win-win for the communities in which we're building without without compromising you know without mm. having to value engineer some of the things that are really important about, about our homes our communities and the like and it's about how do we kind of replicate kind of urban villages how do we create more than just homes it's that green infrastructure it's that it's those public realm, open spaces that we all go back to and reflect on being the successes of these developments uh, more yeah. than just having, you know, great homes for people to live in. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. So I, I first became aware of your work when I read an article that I think you were you were being interviewed rather than writing the article in the MJ. And you were talking about the whole concept of passive house. And I know most people listening will have heard the term, but what does that mean? And is it a brand or is it a concept? Or Yeah, that's a really good question, Andrew, because um, I'm often asked that. And um, it, I certainly it, it isn't a religion um, because <laughs> I think some people probably think it is my religion. But I am I am quite religious about it. Um, basically, Passive House is an international building standard. It's yeah. a building standard. Right. So it's it's kind of like if you think of the UK building regulations, um, it's kind of like that, but on steroids. And right. I don't mean that in a negative way in, in terms of it's it's really regulatory, regulatory and kind like of re- um, really well nourished, maybe rather than on steroids. <laughs> yeah, really well nourished. I like that. Um, 
But it basically results in by adopting that standard, you're kind of guaranteed to deliver some really high performing buildings. Yeah. Um, so Passive House really operates um, in three key areas. Um, it was developed as an energy standard. So it principally eradicates fuel poverty. So we're, we are basically investing in the fabric of the building and the way it's orientated and it's designed. So it needs virtually no active heating, no oh. active energy for heating the building. It's also a hygiene standard. Now, that's quite I think that's quite Germanic because it origi- originated in Germany. So, you know, it's not probably a language that we'd, we would use. But because we're working exclusively with building physics, we're just designing buildings that eradicate things like condensation. Yes. Um, and so we are creating really healthy homes. Which is really so, topical oh, at the minute, obviously. Yeah. For, obviously yeah. yeah. Everyone's talking about mold and damp. Yeah. You know, you cannot get mold and damp in these homes, you know, particularly if they're built to the certified standard. And then finally, it's a comfort standard. Now, yeah. what do we mean by comfort? Well, we all want warm homes. Yeah. But we also want cool homes, don't we? Especially with the rate of climate change. And so Passive House, again, because it's using building physics, we're utilising a piece of software called the Passive House Planning Package. We are basically using facts and figures to design something that will truly perform. Um, and I, I think that's what we really like about the the standard. It, yeah. it absolutely says what it's going to what it's going to deliver, and it it doesn't. It never under delivers. If anything, it overperforms and it absolutely eradicates that performance gap that we see time and time again, particularly in new homes. Is a passive house, is that a lot more expensive to build or is it a piece of engineering genius or what do the economics of it look like? If you compare passive house, say, with building regulations, it's kind of like comparing a kind of top of the range Tesla car. Mm-hmm. with kind of an old diesel Ford Fiesta. Yeah. You know, you, you, you're not really comparing Apple with Apple. Yes. Um, so do passive house homes cost more to build? They could, but they don't necessarily have to. I mean, ultimately, mm-hmm. a lot of it's down to how you are designing your homes and the materials that you're using to build it. So the passive house doesn't specify the design. So it it doesn't restrict the look of your building, nor does it restrict the materials that you can use to build the building. So something that I've had to sort of spend a lot of resource looking at is how do we deliver these exemplar buildings, but without cost premium? And you can do it, Um, but it relies on you working with the right consultants that have got passive house experience and really understanding how you can engineer that sweet spot of not yeah. paying cross premiums. So, for example, you know, your passive house architect, a designer, could easily remove 60% of the cost premium for the passive mm-hmm. house home just on the design. And then we can draw down other cost savings through maybe the different materials that we're specifying, maybe on, you know, the amount of glazing systems that we're utilising. So, like some value engineering kind of, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't need to cost more. Typically, um, evidence on passive house projects that have been completed over the last um, 15 years in the UK. I can say, you know, 15 years ago, I was paying probably a 20 percent cost premium. Now you can probably contain the premium between 
two, three, four percent. So it doesn't have to cost a, a, you know, a, a capital cre- premium. And then if you compare the cost premium with the longer term running costs of the building, then it really then becomes a no brainer because yeah. that that negligible amount of additional capital investment you make at the new build stage, you'll certainly get back in some cases within five years. So the whole business case of Passive House is very, very credible. And how widespread is the concept in terms of council house building? Do a lot of councils talk the talk, but not necessarily walk the walk? Increasingly, they are walking the walk. So, um, I mean, I was responsible for delivering the first UK multi-residential Passive House um, homes 12 years ago, 13 years ago. Um, now, I would say that not every council, but certainly most councils are certainly aspiring towards the passive house standard. And increasingly, I think you're having a fair proportion that are beginning to deliver to the passive house standard. Yeah. Um, so it's changed. I mean, the whole from, you know, I used to be kind of the mad woman spouting <laughs> on the benefits of this this obscure building standard to now, you know, in many respects, people saying we want it the challenge is how can we deliver it and how can we deliver it quickly and cost effectively and are there not, i mean i guess a council can state the desire to do this but as you said it's very reliant on having the right people involved in the project the consultants the architects the the people who know how to actually build the houses to that standard and as, as you were also saying there's it's not like you just you know download a passive house design and build it you know there's 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 a lot of that local you know creativity that needs to go into the design of the buildings and things as well and absolutely what i would say is you know for some for some people that maybe are less interested about you know energy or even hygiene or comfort you know what we've been able to demonstrate is just by adopting a more stringent building standard you have a phenomenally higher quality building um, and we can see that now, particularly across the globe, where Passive House has been adopted for in excess of 30 years, when you go back and visit those buildings. And it's not just the, the, the performance from a, you know, an energy efficiency perspective. But if you look at the quality, the quality of the yeah. materials, the, the way in which it's being built is just better. And that's because Passive House has really stringent um, criteria yeah. and quality assurance needs. Um, and what we're seeing in the UK is contractors are becoming really good at delivering passive house projects. Um, they're not complicated. Um, they're not designed in ways in which people aren't necessarily familiar with. It's just a different mindset. And, and I feel, you know, from all the contractors that I've worked with over the last 15 years, once contractors understand the why, why are we building it this way? They completely um, buy into it and indeed yeah. you know i i've seen subcontractors that have said look i don't want to move back to building how i used to build i now need i now see a new way of building which is just delivering much better quality homes and yeah. and actually i feel proud of that and i do feel we have an industry that is crying out to yeah. build differently and be proud of what they're building and, and just so people who like me do not have the first notion of how how to go about building a house what are some of the elements that would exist in a passive house that wouldn't be in a kind of a i don't know 1970s house for instance 
Probably just two main pre- features that would stand out. Firstly, you don't need a central heating system because you just don't need that amount of heat for the home. And we often joke that you only really need a dog. A dog in your home would generate enough heat to keep your passive house home warm enough. So you don't have a central heating system. But what we do have is a mechanical ventilation heat recovery system. So this is basically because with a passive house, it is principally airtight. Now, not airtight to the point that you're going to suffocate, but it's airtight. So it's completely draft free. So you won't find, for example, a letterbox on the front door to a passive house because that would just well, you wouldn't be certified passive house It's too big a hole. So we have an MVHR system and that basically brings in constant fresh air that is filtered. And it's not like a heat pump. Is that a sort of a heat pump thing? Yeah, well, what it sort of, yeah, because you can use it as a heat source. So you can put yeah. a heating element in and that's taking fresh air in that is filtered. It's then bringing that fresh air in. And while it's coming in, it's then going through a heat exchanger that's taking out the heat of the stale air going out. So it doesn't yes. contaminate, contaminate itself with the air. It's taking the heat energy and then yes. it's recirculating that fresh air around the building. And so you have yes. constant fresh air, uh, but you have a draft free home. So yes. that's one of the, the most distinctive features. Now, you won't hear it. So if you've got a good MVHR, you can't hear it, even though it's on 24-7. The other feature that you probably won't, again, you won't even probably notice is we've got triple glazed windows. Uh, I totally get that. When I lived in in a an old house in, in Greenwich, there was this beautiful big window, but it was single glazed and we could not keep that room warm. So I, I totally yeah. get that. Totally so get we that. Ha- So we have triple glazed windows. And I think the magic about Passive House is in order to get certification, A, it needs to be airtight. I mean, we give you're given a little bit of leeway. You're allowed 0.6 air changes. So that's basically you're looking at gaps no greater than a 50 pence piece in a home. So, you know, very little tolerance. Um, But with the triple glazed windows, Basically, the surface temperature within a passive house home won't fall below 19 degrees. So even if it's minus 40 degrees outside, if you touch that internal skin of triple glazing, it won't be less than 18, 19 degrees. So that's when we talk about comfort. You know, this is how I'm articulating, you know, living in a home, you know, whether it's 40 degrees plus, as we're experiencing on the continent, or minus 40 Mm. degrees, you will maintain a level of thermal comfort that you can comfortably continue living in your home. Um, And and that's becoming, you know, it's been important because of fuel poverty for a number of years. But now it's becoming really important because we can't afford for our homes to be packed full of air conditioning units because we haven't got capacity on our energy grid to, you know, to provide comfort cooling it to that to that level so we really need to invest into the fabric of our homes and that's what passive house does that's really fascinating thank you for explaining that i feel like i've learned a huge amount i'm going to go home now and have a look <laughs> around and see whether i can plug any gaps or anything but that that's really interesting thank you i'd like to just move us along now just to talk about leadership more generally because you you lead an organization and you're trying to achieve really tough things. So how would you describe your leadership style? I, I don't think I've got one distinctive style. 
I mean, I would say I probably, I would probably say I, I can relate to two kind of styles. So my approach is, you know, I'm a servant leader. So I passionately believe in serving the public and the public sector. And I think, you know, my strong sense of vocation has really enabled me to endure the the challenges of pioneering, you know, passive house and healthy buildings and climate ready buildings in the UK. But I think at the same time, to enable me to do that, I've needed to be transformational. Um, and and I think more transformational in terms of how I work with the teams that I work with. And, you know, my role is to create an environment where we can almost make the impossible possible. And to do that, you need people to almost transform themselves. They need to believe in what we're building and why we're building it. Um, and we've needed to almost transform the construction um, mm-hmm. arena to go on the journey with us. In the same way, we've had to transform perhaps the public sector in investing in this and, and really believing in it. And also we've got to you know, transform the people that are going to be living in these homes. And for me, it's been really special to see that, you know, over 15 years, we've had over 60 percent of our occupants in passive house homes haven't needed to switch their heating on. You know, for some people, that's been, you know, over a decade and it's really difficult to get your head round. You know, can you imagine living in your own home and not needing to switch your heating on because it's been built so well? It's so well insulated. It's so comfortable. Um, and I think for me, it's about building homes that, that do transform the lives. And and I always remember, you know, one of the first council homes I built many years ago um, uh, for to Passive House. I remember somebody telling me, you know, look, the money that we're saving on heating, we can go on a family holiday. We've not been able to go on a family holiday in, you know, in our children's lives. And so there's something really magical about more than just building homes. You know, these are are homes that really transform the lives of of the people that live in them. And that, for me, is is transformational leadership. What about the team that you have around you? Do you put a lot of emphasis on making sure you get people who share your vision and are as committed to it as you are? Uh, absolutely. Look, you know, the, the public sector, we don't pay top dollar, you know, and we're able to attract some of the very best individuals in the industry because their values are aligned in what we're doing. You know, they're excited about building better quality homes and buildings. They're excited about the legacy, you know, that legacy piece yeah. we talked about. They're excited about leaving something that they feel proud of. And I think increasingly, particularly with younger generations that are coming into our industry, they're being a lot more selective about the arenas in which they work in. And particularly construction, often, you know, construction's got a bit of a reputation. It can be a, be seen as a bit of a polluter, a bit dirty, not necessarily an enhancement. And yeah. we're changing that now. You know, we're building homes, we're building buildings, we're creating communities um, that are not compromising the environment in what we're doing. And indeed, you know, these are planet positive homes. Um, And I think that is attracting um, a new generation of people that suddenly want to do things differently and they want to do things better. Yeah. So is a big is a big part of your job negotiating with 
the various players that need to be aligned, the construction companies and things like that, because I know most people, a lot of people, sorry, a lot of people listening will have maybe had to get a construction work done, maybe even if it's just getting a bathroom tiled or something, and just that's stressful enough rather than having to build all the homes that you're building. So do you, is negotiating a big part of your job? Um, yes, but I think, you know, that's kind of a natural it's a natural role of a developer, you know, at the end of yeah. the day, I wouldn't say it's much, I was going to say compromising, but no, because passive house is very uncompromising. But I think there is something about um, aligning people so you can create what I call that win-win situation. Yeah. Um, and and a lot of that comes down to collaboration. Um, it's mm. about understanding the value that each individual component of that team brings, including the constructor. And yeah. and I think it's really important to understand that you are one team and that, you know, even though often we are the client, actually, no, we're one team and we've yeah. all got one goal in terms of what we're seeking to deliver. And I think that one team approach is absolutely critical and that whole sense of equity and and equality so that yeah. there shouldn't be winners and losers in terms of well, you know. Who's going to make money out of this deal? It's about yeah. how can we how can we all benefit and contribute something better and then be in a position where you can replicate that. And hopefully next time around, you can re- replicate it even better and more easily and hopefully more cost effectively. I think that's exactly right. And from our own experience, the best the best public sector clients we work with are ones that understand that the world changes and that maybe we agreed to do this up front but if the need changes they are flexible to move with us and kind of adapt to the changing environment and you know it it is much more of a partnership yeah and i you know i think these days it's all about relationship yeah you know yeah. and you know i always say to people you know construction actually is just a it's a people's game you know it's yeah. all about people and it's you know so much so many people think it's about bricks and mortar Yes. Um, or timber frame or block or whatever. Um, but it's not, it's all about people. And, and I think when you just understand the psychology of what you're seeking to achieve, um, yeah. then, you know, you can make the impossible possible because you're just aligning people to that North Star. You know, that's where we're going. That's where we need to, to be. We can't do it on our own. We need the right people that are aligned with us. And then we just go for it. I completely agree. And I think you saying that might come as a surprise. Some people who will definitely think, well, surely, you know, home building is home building. But you're right. Everything is has a person at the end of it. And every organization is led and staffed by human beings who have their personal preferences and the way they want to do things and their needs. And you've got to really understand all of that to get to get things moving. And you're absolutely right. Most problems which occur or a lack of relationship or a relationship breaking down or anything it's not it tend you know the actual physical problems tend to there always seems to be a solution to those if the relationship is right so i'm completely sold on passive house are there any other standards that you work to or subscribe to well actually i do so certified passive house complete religion fantastic you know great in terms of energy efficient comfort and, and hygiene but um, for me that doesn't go far enough um, so we want really energy efficient homes that's really important and, but we also need homes that are healthy now passive house is great because it ticks a lot of those boxes it's a comfort 
factor as well, comfort criteria. But um, I work alongside building biologists. And so we really look at the materials in which we're building our homes, um, how we're decorating, how we're providing the services within the homes in terms of electricity to really make them as healthy as possible. And then what we also want to ensure is um, that our homes are climate ready. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, we want homes that are going to be climate resilient for the whole of their lifetime. Now, Passive House does that pretty well. It's got um, tolerances within its Passive House planning package to ensure that it won't overheat. But um, that isn't enough. And the rate of climate change is such um, that I work with climate scientists to look at probabilistic weather file data. And we design the buildings so that they're resilient enough to deal with two principal areas. Firstly, <clears throat> increasing summertime temperatures. So mm-hmm. more heat waves, more prolonged periods of warm weather where, you know, particularly new homes that are airtight, yeah. you know, we're, they're not comfortable. You know, we haven't got. The, the comfort factor that we can just stay in them. We have to open all the windows, have to go outside. Yeah. So we want to protect them from a comfort perspective in terms of overheating. But we also want to protect them in terms of storm conditions. You know, we're seeing them big deluges of rain where we have flash flooding. So we're looking at the design of buildings so that we can either hold back water. So we're not having so much flood flash effects. Or we're producing or designing ways in which we are over designing the rainwater goods, for example, so we can capture more rainwater. Okay. Um, so I think those are two additional key components that really help us deliver these exemplar council homes and, and market homes. I have to go back to the concept of a building biologist. You kind of mentioned that very quickly. Is that a that, that's a job, is it? It is. Um, so if you were so we work to a German building biology standard. Um, there's other standards in, in the US of A. Um, we like the German standard because it's very technical based. It's science based. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. So if you were in the U, if you were in Germany, for example, and you were suffering from recurring, uh, recurring health issues that, you know, a doctor just couldn't really get to the bottom of. It's not it's not unusual for you to be referred to to a building biologist and they would come to your home and to your workplace and they would then kind of look at whether or not there's some internal environmental factors that are, you know, affecting your health and well-being. And so, for example, we know, you know, the impact of poor sleep what that has in terms of health and well-being. So we particularly look and place a lot of emphasis on the design of our bedrooms, uh, particularly in terms of um, finishes. So we're looking at um, finishes that have got low VOCs, volatile organic compounds, so they're not off-gassing. And that's really important, particularly in new homes. But also we want to ensure that we've got as lower electromagnetic radiation levels as possible so emrs you know there's a lot of evidence now published evidence that shows um, the correlation between high levels of emrs and the impact on our health particularly our sleep particularly in terms of children's developing brains so in our homes we will wire our homes slightly different to reduce the emrs but we'll also sheath all the cabling um, so that enables us to um give our occupants a really good night's sleep and obviously protect them and their young children um, in the future in terms of the impact of 
of those EMRs on their developing brains. Wow. I have a lot of Googling to do after after this recording. Emma, that's brilliant. Thank you. So can you give an example of a building that you've worked on that uses these techniques that wasn't a normal dwelling? Are there different types of buildings that you work on? So last year I delivered last year I delivered the UK's first passive house leisure centre and probably the world's first passive house climate ready building biology compliant building. Um, right. And I delivered that for Exeter City Council um, as a public sector building. And yeah. what's really unique about that building is, A, it's passive house. So we've got a massive amount of energy efficiencies, which obviously with swimming pools and leisure centres, they're one well, of the most I mean, from our, from our levelling up work, we know leisure centres and swimming pools are the biggest carbon emitters there are. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so for us, it seemed really natural to take all our learning from building passive house homes to building the passive house leisure centre. But yeah. I think what's really unique about the building is um, is the building biology features because they really stand out because, yeah. um, for example, we have um, three pools in the building and none of them have much chlorine. Well, I'll tell you how much chlorine they have. They have 20 percent of the concentration of chlorine that you would have in your kitchen tap. So virtually oh, no right. chlorine. And so, so none of the stingy. I can remember as a child no, going no to the swimming pool and my eyes burning. Yeah. No itchy skin. Um, so we have, you know, we have gin quality water. It's crystal clear, really did, natural. Did you say gin quality? Gin, yeah, gin quality means it's like really clear. Nice. I like it. Yes, I can relate to that. Uh, I think and you can drink things, it. I'm not sure I'd be drinking. You can get drunk. Soup. So you can drink it. And that's probably one of the drivers for us adopting building biology for these pools, yeah. because a child will typically consume a pint of pool water in a 45 minute swimming lesson. So if you think about, you know, putting a pint glass into your local council swimming yeah. baths and oh. drinking it, it doesn't bear thinking of. No. Um, I so, mean, a child might also have a pee in the pool as well. So our, so our pool, uh, so our pool is cleansed using yeah. um, ceramic filters. So we're right. constantly cleaning the water through these ceramic filters that basically remove all the the nasties. Um, and I can assure you, and I swim in it most days. Um, it's 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 very drinkable, very very drinkable. Fantastic. And then Thanks. if you go, so if you go in the building, what really strikes you is a you can't smell that chlorine. Yeah. Um, and and B, it's very natural. So we have because we haven't got caustic chemicals, we can put lots of timber. So we've got lots of timber, lots of um, hard surfaces that are very, very natural um, yeah. because of building biology. We have um, a very muted palette of colours that are very earthy. So when you go into the building, your body almost begins to naturally sort of react to that and relax. Um, and so you can start see seeing how people's behaviours change. I mean, in the heavy weights area of the gym, and we have a 150 station gym, yeah. the wall in that section of the room is kind of dusky pink. And I don't think people really notice it. But if you go into that area, 
you know, with with the lots of natural daylight that we've got coming into the buildings, because that helps with our hormone productions, our circadian rhythms, people are just exercising better, more comfortably. There's no kind of yeah. over competitive behaviours. And that's because we're creating this really healthy environment. Amazing. Thank you. So just as a final question, then, um, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in or around public services who wants to make an impact in the way that you have? I think from my perspective, it's it's getting that alignment in terms of your own values and what you want to seek to achieve and aligning that to something within the public sector that they also want to to deliver. Um, And I I think there's a concept that's quite new to me that, that I think really sums this up really well. And, it's a Japanese concept and it's called um, Ikigai, which yes. means reason, reason for being. Yes. Are you familiar with it, Andrew? I am, it's yes. new to me. And it's kind of like that sweet spot uh, between what you love, what the world needs, uh, what you're good at and what you can be paid for. Yeah. Um, so it really kind of encompasses things like profession, vocation, passion and mission. And kind of if you can reach that sweet spot, you know, you can be really happy, fulfilled and and I think capable of anything. And I think for me, how have I got to where I've got to, you know, how do I make the impossible possible in the public sector? And I think it's about getting that icky guy. It's getting that sweet spot. And and for me, that's my reason for being. Um, So I think for other people in the public sector, I think it is you know, seek out your reason for being. You know, the yeah. fact that you're in the public sector probably is because you've got some sense of vocation. Um, and it's really how can you turn that sense of vocation into something where you can have some real tangible outcomes? Um, then I think then you'll be happy and fulfilled and um, life will be good for everyone then. It's a fantastic concept. And I came across it recently myself, actually, and just started thinking about it when I, I was on holiday a couple of weeks ago, actually. And uh, it's a real it's a really interesting concept and it's it's harder to achieve than you just ex- explained there. But it's the journey towards it is the key thing. You know, as long as you you have something, if you've asked yourself the questions that are involved in in building your own icky guy, then I think that you're probably going to start heading in a better direction for sure. So, Emma, thank you so much for this. I want to thank you particularly because this is out of all the podcast episodes, this is the sub- a subject which I'm which I know least about. So I, I thank you for your patience in explaining things and for a lot of the listeners as well. This is a subject that everyone involved in public services, be that people focused or place focused really need to understand how this works and it can sometimes seem like quite an abstract concept building houses and you've explained a lot of the concepts really well and this the whole passive house you know concept just seems so obvious to me but it's fantastic so thank you so much for your time thanks andrew it's been a pleasure so i really loved that conversation not only was it an area that i knew very little about but Emma's clearly so passionate and expert in it. It was a real pleasure to have a conversation with her. And my main reflection is about the challenge of building homes. So there's political and economic challenges, but even if you take the local politics out of it, there are still a huge number of challenges. We obviously need more homes. Building regulations are becoming ever more stringent, often for very good reasons. 
Inflation is driving up costs without a lot more money in the system to cover those increased costs. There's the pressure to create homes that are sustainable and fuel efficient, but also future proofed. And then also that need that councils very rightly have and Emma rightly has to not just build homes, but build communities that are connected and have green spaces. And all of this is additional cost, but such a challenge in the environment we're in. And remembering that, you know, this isn't even talking about planning politics and the local politics, which goes around house building, which is often quite a big part of the problem. So against that backdrop and that challenging environment, what we really got from Emma today was a lesson in how to get things done in a public sector environment and the importance of having the relationship set up in the right way with the council, having that shared vision and ambition and agreed outcomes that everyone wants to achieve is so important. Having the right relationships and understanding with your suppliers as well is critically important. And Emma made this point herself, the importance of relationships, even in something as practical and physical as house building, is key. Relationships are everything. Anything can be achieved if you've got those relationships in place up to a point. And finally, I just wanted to say something about the fascinating world of passive house and building biology, and especially that story Emma told at the end of the passive house leisure centre she built. I don't know about you, but when I think back to when I was younger going to the leisure centre, the smell of the chlorine that hit you in the face when you entered and then after you'd been in the swimming pool, the stinginess in your eyes and everything, to think that, that that's all something of the past. Now, I haven't been swimming in a while, so maybe that has moved on a bit, but I thought that was fascinating. And really, when we're doing our levelling up work with Mutual Ventures, a lot of the concerns councils have around reaching their carbon reduction targets are around their leisure centres and the fact that they are incredibly inefficient. And this feels like a really big positive contribution that will need investment but will be so important if councils are to get anywhere near responding to the climate crisis that so many of them have declared. So that's everything for this episode. Thank you so much for your time. I hope you enjoyed it and please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcasts and if you want to leave a nice review that's always very welcome. 